You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 159, The Battle of the Clouds. Last week, I covered the Battle of Brandywine, which was the major battle that both sides had hoped would be decisive. General Washington had hoped to halt the British advance on Philadelphia. General Howe had hoped to wipe away the American rebels and take their capital. Howe won the battle and forced the Continentals to retreat, but he did not capture the enemy army. Washington and the bulk of his soldiers escaped to fight another day. Following the battle, General Howe made no real effort to follow up and crush his opponent. Instead, the British and Hessian soldiers remained in camp near Brandywine Battlefield for five days. Remember, the British had only landed in Maryland a little over two weeks earlier. Most of the soldiers were sick or out of shape after being kept aboard ship for six weeks. Most of their horses had died, and the remainder were in terrible condition. After fighting a major battle, Howe did not want to push his men too hard. Although Howe had tried to put a stop to looting in hopes of winning over the local populace, he was fighting a losing battle. At least two British soldiers were executed in the days after the battle for looting and marauding. The British Army did spend time looking for American soldiers in hiding and also for stashed supplies. They also commandeered necessary food, horses, and anything else the army needed from the local population. General Howe deployed General James Grant with a couple of regiments to look for American stragglers during the Continental Retreat. Grant's men scoured the area, finding little. Without horses, the soldiers on the march could cover little ground. The few feeble horses that they did have to pull their cannons could barely make it up some of the hills. The British also had a large number of their own wounded, as well as several hundred wounded American prisoners. Howe sent a message under a flag of truce, inviting the Continentals to send doctors to care for the wounded prisoners being held by the British. Several Philadelphia surgeons, including Dr. Benjamin Rush, a signer of the Declaration, entered British lines under a flag of truce to care for wounded prisoners. While there, Rush met with a number of British officers and spoke with an old friend, Joseph Galloway, who had been a delegate to the Continental Congress at one time. Rejecting independence, though, Galloway had thrown in his lot with the British and was assisting General Howe. The two men, now enemies, spoke cordially and respectfully to each other. The Continental Army had retreated from Brandywine in relatively good order. The men were exhausted, but did not panic. Most of the army marched to the village of Chester for the night. The next morning, Washington moved his soldiers up to the Schuylkill River, 
where they crossed a pontoon bridge and entered Philadelphia. Fearing an imminent attack on the city, Washington removed his wounded to Trenton and other towns north of Philadelphia. The wounded General Lafayette went to Bethlehem. The Schuylkill River was the last major barrier separating the British from Philadelphia. It took the Continental Army two days to move across the narrow bridge to the east bank of the Schuylkill. If the Continentals removed the bridge, there would be no way for the British to cross in the face of the enemy. Of course, Washington knew that Howe could just move north, upstream, and cross the Schuylkill where it was easier to ford the river. If the British did cross upstream, they could do so and then march down the west bank and turn Washington's flank, just as he had done on the banks of the Brandywine. In such a maneuver, Washington could easily find himself pinned in Philadelphia and forced to surrender his army along with the city. Washington's other concern about his position was that it left the village of Reading exposed. Reading was up to the west where the Continental Army had stored a great quantity of food and supplies. The British would undoubtedly receive intelligence about this supply depot. General Howe could send his regulars to capture the supplies that his own army needed and deny them to the Continentals. So, on September 14th, while the British continued to camp near the Brandywine during the days after the battle, and after Washington had given his army a day's rest, he provided the soldiers with more ammunition and then crossed back over the Schuylkill River. He crossed further upstream across one of the fords near what is today Conshohocken. Washington put the Continental Army in a position where they could contest any British movement to the north, either toward Reading or to move upstream where the regulars might ford the Schuylkill and take Philadelphia. With the Continentals on the march, the British, well, remained in camp. The British spent much of September 12th burying the dead from both sides and tending to the wounded. They sent out foraging parties to collect food for the army. On September 13th, Howe sent a detachment to capture Wilmington, Delaware. The local militia there put up no fight and fled, abandoning their cannons without a shot fired. The British captured Delaware's president, John McKinley, who remained in town to oversee the town's so-called defense. After taking the town, Howe moved his wounded and his American prisoners to Wilmington as well. As planned, at least a few ships from Admiral Howe's Navy also reached Wilmington about this time and helped remove the wounded. The Continentals still had forts and other defenses that prevented the Navy from sailing further upstream to Philadelphia, but the lower part of the Delaware was relatively open to the British. Although the British Army took its time and Washington prepared to put up another defense once it started to march again, most patriots feared that Philadelphia would fall within days. On September 12th, just the day after the Battle of Brandywine, Thomas Paine penned his Crisis No. 4, where he began by noting the loss at Brandywine. The event of yesterday was one of those kind of alarms which is just sufficient to rouse us to duty, without being of consequence enough to depress us our fortitude. It is not a field of a few acres of ground, but a cause which we are defending. And whether we defeat the enemy in one battle or by degrees, the consequences will be the same. 
Payne went on in his article to point out that with Howe's limited number of soldiers being reduced with every battle, he must eventually fail no matter how many victories he had in the field. The Continental Congress began an inquiry into the loss at Brandywine. It ordered General Washington to open a court of inquiry against General de Boer for his actions at Brandywine. You may recall from last week the Continental General from France had been in command of the left wing on Birmingham Heights. The soldiers were out of position and ran when attacked. The fall of the left flank led to the general defeat of all the divisions on Birmingham Hill and could have proved much more disastrous, but for the rearguard action led by General Nathaniel Green. When informed that he would face a court of inquiry, General Prudhomme de Boer instead submitted his resignation on September 13th, blaming his failure on ill-trained and incompetent soldiers. Congress accepted his resignation the next day. That would be the end of de Boer's career in the Continental Army, but not his end in the Revolution. De Boer returned to France and to his commission as a colonel in the French Army. A few years later, he would return to America with the French Army after France entered the war. But that's getting ahead of our story. For now, de Boer was going home to France. Congress also requested General Sullivan, who was supposed to be commanding de Boer's division on Birmingham Hill, also be recalled from duty until there could be a court of inquiry. On this question, Washington demurred. He needed Sullivan to remain commander of the Maryland troops. He told Congress he could not afford to suspend General Sullivan or conduct a court of inquiry at that time because he anticipated another battle within days. Sullivan would retain his command. He would face a court-martial later that year, not only for Brandywine, but also for his actions on Staten Island a month earlier, as well as a few other things. That court-martial would acquit Sullivan of all charges and clear him to return to duty. Congress, though, was not just looking for leaders to blame. They also had praise for many of the commanders at Brandywine. The Marquis de Lafayette's battlefield wounds only improved the young general's reputation. The other foreign hero from Brandywine was Casimir Pulaski. On September 15th, Congress granted Pulaski a commission as a brigadier general in the Continental Army. I mentioned last week that Pulaski had organized a cavalry charge to halt the British advance and give the rest of the Continental Army time to retreat. Congress had been debating whether to give him a commission since he arrived in America in late July. His leadership and daring at Brandywine was enough to convince the delegates that he was the man for the job. Pulaski had been born in Warsaw in 1745. At the time, Warsaw was capital of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. It had a king who was elected by nobles. Coming from a noble family, Pulaski was a member of the national elite. He had served as a cavalry officer and grew in reputation. King Stanislaw II Augustus allied himself with the Russians and sought to turn the country into a Russian protectorate. Stanislaw cut off alliances with France and Austria, leading to war. The war went bad for Poland, and Russia, Prussia, and Austria partitioned the country in 1772. 
During the war that led to the partition, Pulaski was part of a conspiracy to kidnap the king. This led to charges of attempted regicide and made him a wanted man throughout Europe. Pulaski had to flee his homeland, first to Prussia, then to the Ottoman Empire, and then again to France. He attempted to join other armies, but the criminal charges against him meant that no other king would offer him a commission. Facing debtor's prison, Pulaski heard that American agents in Paris were looking for officers to go fight in America. He met with Benjamin Franklin and impressed him with his military experience and zeal for liberty. French officials strongly encouraged Franklin to give Pulaski a commission and even offered to pay his travel costs to America. France was eager to get him to leave the country before his presence there created an international incident. Pulaski took Franklin's recommendation and boarded a ship for America in June 1777. He arrived in Boston in late July, studying English during his voyage. After presenting his credentials to Congress in August, he rode off to join the Continental Army without waiting for Congress to act. He served as an unofficial gentleman volunteer to George Washington in the weeks leading up to Brandywine. But after the Battle of Brandywine, following his feats of bravery, he was now commissioned as a brigadier general in the Continental Army. Pulaski was also given the title of Commander of the Horse. Also, on September 15th, the same day that Congress granted a commission to Pulaski, it also granted a commission as Major General to Baron Johann de Kalb. Remember that de Kalb had traveled with Lafayette and several other would-be generals to America months earlier, but got caught up in the political dispute over having too many French generals. Congress had offered Lafayette a commission as Major General after Lafayette agreed to serve without pay. Congress left de Kalb and others cooling their heels in Philadelphia while they decided what to do. In the weeks leading up to Brandywine, Congress had voted not to accept Kalb's offer of service. Delegates then took a few weeks to debate how much to pay for his travel expenses and costs of returning home to France. In the meantime, Kalb did a little sightseeing, visiting the Continental Medical Facilities in Bethlehem, where he met with his wounded comrade, General Lafayette. Lafayette's performance at Brandywine raised the reputation of French officers generally and is credited, at least in part, with Congress's change of heart. Another factor was General Lafayette's strong support for de Kalb receiving a commission. De Kalb had been his superior and mentor in the French army, and that contributed to the change of heart in Congress as well. So Congress voted to make de Kalb a major general. When de Kalb received the news of his appointment the following day, he sent a letter back rejecting the offer. A couple of days after that, though, he had a change of heart and requested several conditions before he would accept his appointment. One of his conditions was that Congress backdate his commission to the same date as Lafayette's. That way, de Kalb would not suffer the indignity of ranking below his former subordinate. He also wanted the option to return to France if he determined his superiors disapproved of his service in the Continental Army. He wanted his aide to be commissioned as a lieutenant colonel, and that he receive a pension and his wife receive a pension if he was killed in service. 
The result of all of these negotiations was that Dekalb did not join the army immediately, but remained in Bethlehem, where he stayed with the wounded General Lafayette. Dekalb and Congress would not agree on terms until well after the British occupied Philadelphia. As Congress debated about officers, General Washington prepared for round two in the British Army's advance toward Philadelphia. As I said, the Continentals had retreated across the Schuylkill River and then crossed back again while the British remained in camp near Brandywine. On September 15th, General Howe learned that the Continentals had advanced toward his camp and were about 10 miles north of his army. Washington seemed to be daring him to a fight another direct battle in open fields, something the British thought that they would win every time. Further, Washington's forces had fallen to around 10,000 men after Brandywine, so Howe at this point had a numerical advantage. In the early pre-dawn hours of September 16th, General Howe assembled his army and began to march to meet the Americans near Whitehorse Tavern a few miles to the north. About 9 a.m., Washington received word from Pulaski's cavalry that the British were on the march. Rather than take up an immediate defensive position, Washington marched his army three miles toward the advancing British. Around 1 p.m., General Cornwallis reported that his British regulars had encountered Pulaski's cavalry and a few hundred militia. These men fled as the first shots were fired. Next, General Neiphausen's Hessian Jaegers ran into Continentals under General Anthony Wayne and William Maxwell. An American charge unnerved the Jaegers and almost led to the capture of Hessian Colonel von Donop. British grenadiers provided support to the Jaegers and stopped the American advance. The British formed a line of battle as General Matthews joined Neiphausen in preparation to attack the Americans. The Continentals were forced onto muddy ground, which made the maneuverability of their cannons difficult and was not a particularly advantageous defensive position. Washington ordered a withdrawal to higher ground, but it looked as though the British would be able to charge the American position before the Americans could withdraw. Just as things were looking bleak, the sky darkened and a driving thunderstorm unleashed across the region. One Hessian officer said that the rain, quote, came down so hard that in a few moments we were drenched and sank in mud up to our calves. The wet powder prevented either side from being able to fire their guns. The thick mud and driving rain made it impossible even to order a bayonet charge. With the loss of their powder and given the relatively weak defensive position, General Washington gave the order to withdraw as the worst nor'easter many had ever seen flooded everything. The Continentals slogged north through the mud and rain, marching about five miles north before reaching camp around 10 p.m. There, the soldiers spent a miserable wet night in the field before marching back to the Schuylkill River the next day. The British marched north, attempting to get around the American right flank and push the Continentals back against the flooded Schuylkill River. The two armies eyed each other the next day, but neither seemed ready to re-engage. By the following day, Friday, September 19th, 
the Schuylkill water levels had fallen enough that the Continentals could move across the fords and take up positions on the other side of the river. Thus, thanks to the weather, what could have become a decisive major battle at Whitehorse Tavern was called on account of rain. Both sides suffered around a 100 casualties in the early fighting, but no full battle could play out. The event later became known as the Battle of the Clouds. The British advanced as the Americans tried to remove supplies stored at Valley Forge and other areas around the region. With their powder destroyed by the rain, it was not clear if the Americans could even put up a defense at the Schuylkill River. Washington directed Lieutenant Colonel Hamilton as one of many officers instructed to remove or destroy supplies that might fall to the enemy. Hamilton was in the process of doing so when his small unit fell under enemy fire. The team fled back to a flat-bottomed boat on the Schuylkill River, exchanging fire with the enemy as they pulled across to the American side. The British Army was poised to cross the Schuylkill River. Hamilton wrote to the President of Congress, John Hancock, that day, If Congress has not yet left Philadelphia, they ought to do it immediately without fail for the enemy have the means of throwing a party this night into the city. With most of the Continental Army along the east bank of the Schuylkill, Washington left one contingent of soldiers under General Anthony Wayne in the field on the west bank to harass the enemy and delay their advance. Wayne's army camped at a small village called Paoli. Next week, I'll take up the story there at the Paoli Massacre. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. As always, I want to thank Trey Nance and George Davis for supporting this podcast on Patreon at the Alexander Hamilton Club level. Also, thanks to Mike Hager, who supports the podcast at the Robert Morris Circle level. Everyone who can pitch in, either with a regular monthly contribution on Patreon or a one-time donation via PayPal, helps keep this podcast free for everyone else who cannot afford to do so. This week, we looked at the aftermath of the Battle of Brandywine, one of the largest battles of the war. Once again, we see General Hale failing to capitalize on his victory by pushing forward aggressively against the retreating enemy. 
The Americans, who had run away, had to march back almost into Howe's face before he would move out of camp again to fight them. For Howe, this might have proven a good strategy. Washington and the Continentals began what became known as the Battle of the Clouds, not on ground really of their choosing. It was not a good defensive location and could have been a more conclusive defeat than Brandywine if the British had captured large portions of the army there. Fortunately for the Continentals, weather once again intervened and flooded out the battlefield before either side could do much of anything. This gave General Washington an opportunity to reconsider his position and pull back across the Schuylkill River. Washington seemed determined to do everything he could to protect Philadelphia, resulting in some risks that could have been devastating. If Howe and the British had been able to capitalize on these risks, we could have had a very different outcome of the war. Also this week, I covered the commissions of Generals DeKalb and Pulaski, two foreign officers who would contribute greatly to the war effort. And sorry if this is a spoiler, but neither man would survive the war. Both gave their lives on the battlefield in the service of their adopted cause. Also, I should address one other point. Last year, the news spread around a theory that General Pulaski was secretly a woman or perhaps a hermaphrodite, also known as an intersex person. This theory is based on his skeleton, dug up decades after his death, which showed a skeletal structure more consistent with that of a female. Of course, we also know that Pulaski had facial hair and a receding hairline during his lifetime. We also know that he was baptized as a male. So the notion that he was a woman posing as a man seems pretty far-fetched. Is it possible that he was a hermaphrodite or intersex and had the features of both male and female? That is a theory that was put forward by Smithsonian Magazine and covered by many of the major media outlets. I'm not an expert on the identification of bodies, so I'm not sure I should really weigh in here. I will say, though, that Pulaski lived his life as a male and by all measures during his lifetime was considered to be a male. So whatever bodily organs he may or may not have had do not alter who he was or the great service that he provided to this country. Pulaski would become known as the father of the American cavalry and will be one of only a handful of people who Congress has granted honorary American citizenship posthumously. My book recommendation this week is one that covers the critical Philadelphia campaign. It is called The Philadelphia Campaign, 1777-1778, by Stephen R. Tafe. I recommended a similarly named book a few weeks ago by Thomas McGuire. They both cover the same campaign and have very similar titles. And Quite frankly, I liked both books. McGuire covers the events in two volumes. If that's too much reading for you on this topic, Tafe covers it in one more succinct volume. Tafe's book begins with the British in New York and the Americans in New Jersey in 1777. It follows Howe's voyage to Maryland and his march up into Philadelphia, the occupation of that city, and the eventual British retreat back to New York which led to the Battle of Monmouth 
in 1778. The author is a professor at Stephen F. Austin State College in Texas. He's written a number of books about U.S. history, all different eras. The Philadelphia Campaign was published in 2003. Last year, he wrote another book called Washington's Revolutionary War Generals, which is about how the Continental Army selected and developed its commanding officers. Another book which I unfortunately haven't had the opportunity to read yet, but has definitely piqued my interest. If you want to read more about the Philadelphia campaign that I will be discussing over the next few weeks, though, you may want to get a copy of The Philadelphia Campaign, 1777-1778. to My online recommendation this week is an article from the Journal of the American Revolution, and I'll also give them a free plug here. If you're not already signed up for a free subscription, you definitely should. The journal puts out lots of great articles every single week on both commonly known and obscure parts of the American Revolution. The article that I'm recommending today is Aggressive-Minded Gamblers, Washington, Howe, and the Days Between Battles, September 12th through 16th, 1777, by Gary Eckelbarger. The article covers just what we covered in the episode today, the days following the Battle of Brandywine, and looks in detail at the various maneuvers by the Continentals while the British sat around and did relatively little. Mr. Eckelbarger has written a number of history books, mostly about the Civil War, but this article shows his interest in the Revolutionary War as well. You can search for the article, which is on the journal's website, allthingsliberty.com. Or, as always, I have a direct link to it on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.